this is the People and Planet podcast, where we share stories from around the world about what is it that we can do to not only heal our planet, but to heal ourselves. My name is Alexandra Guerra. I'm an entrepreneur in the climate change space, and I believe that we must absolutely address what is stopping us from healing ourselves as people and societies and communities in order for us to enact real global change whether it's economical or climate change. This is a hobby project for me, um, and I hope you enjoy it. If there's something in particular you'd like to hear about, please feel free to reach out to us. Enjoy. Uh, Hi, and welcome to the People and Planet podcast. This is episode numero uno. Um, I'm here with Lorraine Bonnie Smith, who's a dear friend that I met through other work at Nori. and. Anyways, hi, Lorraine. Hey, good morning. Uh, so happy to have you on our podcast. I'm like smiling so hard because uh, we met through work with Nori and just became fast friends, I think. Um, and there has been so much. So if you haven't listened to the Nori Reversing Climate Change podcast, there's so much uh, that we usually want to talk about. Um, well, I usually want to talk about that goes more to a spiritual level. Um and a deeper level of like, what are people's drivers, what's going on um, that proliferates out into the things that they're working on with regard to planet or just other people. So the People and Planet podcast is a fun side project for me, for hobbies. And um, there's this, did you, Lorraine, have you ever read that book, uh, Big Magic by Elizabeth Gilbert? Oh, no, but I'm a big Elizabeth Gilbert fan. Oh, so so good. Yeah, it's so good. add that one So on. Elizabeth Gilbert wrote the book eat pray love and yes, she that I do. Yep. yeah the other one um she wrote was big magic and it she talks about it from the perspective of like creatives like people who are writers or painters like or musicians that they just play music to play music and we shouldn't be so caught up on like is this going to be the best seller like is this going to make me famous and just do it for the love of doing a thing um so this is my doing something for the love of doing something which is talking to wonderful people and hearing more about what makes you tick and what are the things that we're facing as individuals, our stories. So it's a storytelling platform. So that's the podcast. Thanks for being my first one, Lorraine. Um, it's an honor. It's a huge honor. Yeah. Thank you for inviting me, Alessandra. This is great. Definitely. Um, okay. So why don't you tell the audience a little bit about you and what appeals to you? Why did you say yes to this kind of kooky idea of a podcast. Sure. Yeah. Happy to. Um, and you know, I have to just riff for a moment on your explanation of the podcast because it really, really resonates. One of my favorite lines from music is from a Joni Mitchell song where she's already a very established artist, world famous singer. Um, and her lyric is describing how she's walking through a part of Toronto where there's a, um, what we would call a busker, a fellow playing music on a street corner uh, and he played real good for free. And he's mm. basically a virtuoso clarinetist and who's just, you know, living more or less on the street and raising money by playing incredible music. And she's this world-renowned music with a musician with bodyguards. And that juxtaposition of sort of fame and glory because of a talent versus just producing beautiful art for the sake of producing beautiful art, I think is a sentiment that I've carried with me through my life. Uh, so I love that. I think your podcast is very much in that spirit, do things because you can, because they can be beautiful, because they can bring beauty to the world. And that 
I think we need more of. So thank you for, for kicking this off. Yeah. Um, Oh, there's so much I want to say there. There's I'm going through a book that's uh, by Wayne Dyer and he it's called change your thoughts, change your life, I think. Um, And anyways, he had gone through the Tao Te Ching and um, he talks about each passage like he reads the passage and he talks about it and i think somewhere in passage 14 or 15 it's like what is music like is there a purpose to it like just to have been just to have been that like to be there in that moment and feel that that note and the connection of the notes and the silence between the notes is what allows the music to exist so anyways i'm going down another rabbit hole but let's let's stay (laughs) towards you lorraine um, so tell us like what you've, you've been working in sustainability for a while. Can you tell us a little bit about that background and, um, tell us what are you seeing right now? What are the things that you feel that you don't necessarily get to talk about, um, in the forms of our professional work in sustainability? Yeah, it does feel like quite a journey. And just recently I'm starting to talk more about the things I wouldn't normally talk about. So this feels like a great jumping off point. Um, in 2004, I formally uh, entered the field of sustainability, you would say. So I, I got a proper day job in an organization that was dedicated to what we mostly called CSR then, Corporate Social Responsibility, uh, based out of Toronto, Canada, which is the town I'm originally from. And I was working for Canadian Business for Social Responsibility. And I'll describe a little bit about what I was doing there because that sort of sets the stage for more or less the structure of what I've been doing since then, so almost two decades now, which was working with large companies, at that time mostly Canadian companies, and over the years I've branched out to do a lot more international work, mostly large publicly traded companies across sectors, banking, mining, oil and gas, retail, apparel, uh, food, etc. And really looking to help them be more environmentally and socially responsible. And I, I literally remember my first day of work, uh, my boss, Catherine Bohr, sitting me down and saying, you know, telling me about my job, take me for lunch, first day of work. And I was so new to the field. I was like, so when do you think we'll be done? Like, how, how many years do you think we'll be working on this? And she looked at me sort of like, what a, what a honest and frankly, very naive question. Because, uh, like, we're nowhere close. And since then, um, I have spent time doing what you would call fairly traditional consulting work. And I'll I'll say a little bit more what I mean about that. And then I'll explain where I see a shift happening. So the traditional sustainability consulting work, it's a kind of one generation tradition so far, would be doing things like working with companies to help them with their transparency and reporting. So uh, gathering and analyzing data around their energy use, around their employee practices, their human rights practices, their product impacts, etc. And that has evolved. We've seen the, the rise of life cycle thinking. We've seen the rise of more dynamic living systems thinking, all kinds of interesting scholarship coming into that. Uh, we also would see in this kind of traditional sustainability bucket, a lot of stakeholder engagement. So bringing different voices to the table to learn from diverse perspectives, to um, include different voices and and participants in the process that industry goes through. Lots of reporting, uh, lots of of goal setting and strategy and, and innovation. 
this all is a lot of kind of word soup. And I say it with respect because I have enjoyed this work. I've worked with amazing companies, incredible teams, very driven people who are trying to uh, improve practices and have more positive impacts. But you might be hearing a little bit of hesitation in my voice or a little bit of a lurking, but, uh, and that is because this second area of my work that's really starting to grow more has felt more um, urgent, which is related to recognizing all this great work going on and realizing in spite of it, we have, we have a climate emergency, we have growing inequality and the kind of inequality that is, you know, uh, well, unacceptable. It's connected to um, patterns of human and social behavior that are very destructive and very harmful. And industry plays a role. I won't say industry is the cause, because I think industry is an expression of society. But business is such a large player in how society functions that um, we need to see it as a, as a force for change and a catalyst in many different ways. And so I still see things pointed in a direction that isn't acceptable. And I think it's because business models are still generally focused on a financial growth mentality and sort of playing into the GDP conversation, which is broken from the start and sort of widely recognized, but we're still playing that game anyway. So what I'm doing more and more uh, while doing client work with amazing groups that are really trying to move the needle on these things is I'm having more exploratory conversations. I'm spending more time with social innovators or people who are seemingly well outside the mainstream of business. I'm, I'm actually making a lot more of my own art and sort of going back to my roots of drawing and writing, a lot of creative writing, a lot of textile art as well. So that is sort of how I'm spending my time. And that leads me into a lot of different conversations. And I think this one with you is the perfect hybrid because you are also, you know, I know you from Nori, which is a, an amazing startup looking to, well, it's not, I don't know if you say startup now this many years in, but you're looking to monetize carbon removal. So that's like, sits squarely in the financial markets and business as a force for good. And yet, as you and I have mused a little, the role for this deeper level of consciousness and interconnectedness and really questioning our role and our legacies across generations feels really, really important. So yeah, that's, that's kind of where I'm at right now. Yeah. You know, you're touching on so many things. I've been taking notes because I'm like, I want to talk about that. I want to talk about that. Um, get to this, to the point of, we need to get a little deeper because, you know, you said the, the direction is changing, but it's still um, unacceptable for businesses. Um, and I don't know, I guess my hope is that maybe we can talk more about this as a, as a society, because what are businesses, we can, we can sit here, we can point, we can blame and say it's capitalism and it's businesses and it is, but who are at the businesses? It's just other people. And what's, what's stopping those people from making the right decision? Um, yeah, there might be some people, very powerful people at the top who are just might be self-motivated um, to increase profits over people or planet or purpose. Um, I'm just alliterating because I want to. <laughs> um, but yeah, I don't. So what is your take on that? Like, what is it that's stopping us from like those people? Because you work with them, you consult like you consult for them. Um, and I know this is your personal opinion, totally. Um, and yeah. Hopefully, yeah, you feel comfortable sharing, but like, what are, 
what is stopping the people at these businesses from making um, more evolved decisions, if that's a fair way of putting it? Yeah, um, and I'll definitely speak for myself, and these are my own opinions, although I think my collaborators and clients already know me as a little bit peculiar, and I've I've been known to say, for example, to the now CSO of a large bank in, in very active conversation where she kindly said something like, you know, some of your ideas are a little divorced from reality, and in response, I was like, I think your business model is divorced from reality, so... Uh, and we're friends and we still get to hang out from time to time. So um, I think when I say I'm speaking for myself, I actually don't just mean that like as the fine print for, you know, to not get myself in hot water or get others in hot water. I actually mean it in the sense that I can only speak for myself because I I don't know what other people are thinking or feeling. And so to your point, you know, it's easy to blame others, but this isn't about blaming. I, I don't think there's a they, like if they would just, or if they could only, I feel like I can do things and I can understand things. And the reality around me is the reality that I've created. And so even, you know, even in saying your business model is divorced from reality, this is a paradox that I live with, but I accept that I am part of that divorced from realityness, and I'm part of creating it. So how do I reconnect with that and empower myself and others to see a different way? And I, I think your question is a good one, but I'm going to turn it, I'm going to twist it a little because I think the question you ask is, is one I also keep asking, but I'm realizing it's, it's fraught. So, you know, why don't these people make more evolved decisions? Well, what would a more evolved decision be and and what would allow what would create the conditions for all of us to make such decisions so one of the things i see happening when folks in positions of influence within let's say a large company one of the things i see happening when they really sort of wake up and realize the scope of what's going on they leave now in some ways, I think that's great. They, they go on to energize other initiatives, other things, or often it's women and they, they elect to spend more time with their families, which I also applaud and think, who could blame you? And what a wonderful way to spend your time. Yeah. Um, however, in terms of changing the dynamic within business, for me, I want to see more energy going into the business model and the genuine purpose of the business. And so if we leave, if we lose the awake folks, we kind of narrow the scope of who can make those decisions. I have heard a number of people whose opinions I respect say, you know, look, a business that was built or essentially became established and the, the structures that it's based on today from the sixties, seventies, eighties, nineties, it's not built for the purpose we're looking to move into this more biomimetic reality where a company by definition creates value by restoring ecosystems, where a company, as it generates financial value, uh, restores thriving conditions within society. You know, that not as a side project, not as a, a department thinking about sustainability, it's but by the very nature of, of existing. Yeah. That the companies that are big right now and incentivized by quarterly earnings and all the other aspects of what we call, you know, the, the financial markets, they're just not built that way. And so trying to change them is a bad idea. 
I actually kind of agree with that. Um, but I, the metaphor that I hold that keeps me showing up and looking for ways to nonetheless leverage the love, because there's a lot of love in these places and a lot of resources of goodwill and excellence and processes and knowledge. The metaphor that I look to is that of the imaginal cells that are the sort of continuity between the caterpillar and the butterfly. So, and this is a, this is a well-worn um, metaphor, not, no new thinking coming out of my head here. I just borrow it as a, as a tool, which is that, you know, if the caterpillar survives to the butterfly stage, which is a pretty big if, like caterpillars get squished and stuff. But so if, I, if I follow that metaphor where the caterpillar is one day crawling along on its many little legs, munching leaves, and then not too long later, it's gone into a cocoon and it comes out as a butterfly, to the average person showing up with no knowledge that this guy is going to be that guy, they look like completely separate species, right? How do you even fathom that the one is the other? And it is, right? But then if you say, well, it is, so I, I'm going to fathom it, what can you fathom? You can fathom that at the beginning of that caterpillar's life, the code for butterflyness was already there. Mm. It, was already, it was already just on its way to being a butterfly. And that code in butterfly caterpillar speak is this concept of imaginal cells. The word is kind of a beautiful word in English because it touches on our sense of imagination and imagery. Um, so, but all the words aside, the, the knowledge that even as this caterpillar is basically becoming a slurry, like it's turning to what we would interpret as just goopy nothing, it is in fact preparing to become this beautiful ephemeral thing that a lot of people love and that has capabilities that its earlier self didn't. So my, what I enter into when I spend time doing things like helping companies create reports in accordance with the Global Reporting Initiative and the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures and all these kind of nutsy boltsy mechanisms on transparency, um, even as I push the friendly boundaries of some of those, and I've said some pretty uncomfortable things about some of those uh, frameworks, and yet I work in that space. So even as I'm doing that, I'm believing that this is part of helping that caterpillar munch on some leaves and be its best self before it turns into a slurry and the remnants that are present right now emerge as something more capable and more beautiful. And that, that is a terrible answer to your very logical question, you know, how do we help them make better decisions? But my, my simple answer is I believe that those decisions are present and that we're making them. And I just kind of keep believing that and trying to enter the conversations with love and openness. And then quite awkwardly, and this is something I need to work on and learn at being more capable myself, and this is maybe my own little slurry, and then hopefully emerging with two good wings, um, is being able to be really honest and truthful when I do see things that are not okay and that are part of the caterpillar trying to just be a faster leaf-eating creature versus that new beautiful one that I know we need. And that's tough for me to be super honest about really difficult things in the context of a kind of commercial situation. But I'm learning. Uh, that was not a bad, terrible answer. It was a beautiful, <laughs> beautiful answer. Um, 
And there are many things as usual going on in my mind with regard to what you just said. And I'm going to choose this one because you said this word multiple times, including imaginal cells, but love, right? Mm -hmm. So if we're talking about businesses being corrupt and not really serving humanity, but they're made by humans. And maybe the problem is we took humanity out of how we show up to our business, right? And so you keep saying love and openness to make, you know, when you're going through this process and it's almost like, yeah, but you can't talk about love and openness in your office. You can't talk about love and openness and like showing up to your, to your work and being like, look, I think what's hap- what we're lacking here is some love. But people will look at you like you're some hippie dippy woo woo person. But what's so funny is like, that's literally the only thing that really matters is that you show up with love and openness and you create space for yourself and for other people and you really and then have honesty like you said to say when things aren't working um and maybe like that's just one of the things where we have to um, be more holistic in our businesses in our workplace and i see we're seeing it i think we're seeing a trend of that but like even at nori like we have you know i think we're like in puberty stage where we're like our voice is cracking and we're trying to figure out who we are what we are um but like, you know, at one point we're like, oh, show up as your whole selves. And then we're like, no, be professional. No, maybe it's a mix of both. And um, figuring that out and having an example of like, how are we human? But not just like, I don't know. In my mind, I think we could think of like Google or Facebook or any other startups like, oh, they're fun. And they have big mong- ping pong tables and WeWork has free kombucha. But I'm not talking about that. That's frivolousness i'm talking about the true substance the kind of griminess that leads to beauty right like the mud for a a lotus flower to bloom in which is love um and recognizing that and so now i'm wondering like how the hell do we get to this point how do we show up to the office and say with love and have it not be like a weird taboo thing because if we keep denying our humanity which is essentially from the seed of love then we will never change who we are we will never change how we work together we will never change our businesses and the impact that we have on the world so i'm off my pedestal but that's just that's what you need to think of. yeah oh i'd love to respond to that um i mean i guess i would just start by saying i i have as almost always i have more questions than answers and one of the biggest challenges i offer to myself regardless of what setting i'm in whether i'm in a professional setting where, you know, I'm serving a client or I'm just sort of walking down the street, I start with the challenge of having to show up with self-love. And that, you know, when I first, this is, you know, you've, you've opened the door to have some unusual conversations in this podcast, which I appreciate. So I'll just go there a little, which is that when I first learned about the concept of self-love, which is painfully recently, by the way, like, like in the last couple of years, um, I interpreted it as a negative. I interpret it as the same as narcissism or like a really negative thing. And as I've gone through more, you know, we're all on a journey and I'm on yet another chapter of my own journey and thinking more about mindfulness and what we might call spirituality and interconnectedness themes that I feel like I've been exploring for years. And I bump into the concept of self-love by accident and think it's bad, (laughs) you know? So if I've made it this far, as a, you know, relatively educated, relatively mainstream business oriented um, 
person, uh, I can't really expect everyone around me to have embraced the concept of being kind and loving to ourselves and, and showing up with compassion. So once I get over the hurdle of my own massive limitations and recognize that we're all, not all, but a lot of us are coming from a space of like wounded birdhood, right? Like we've had to kind of, we've been trained in a way that has taught us to override a lot of beautiful and loving instincts. And then we've kind of been given the like love card as one in many, like, well, there are songs about love and you can sing those and you can enjoy those songs if you like, and maybe you'll dance to them. Or you can, you know, daydream about getting married or finding the one, you know, and there's your love card. And so there's different ways that we play that love card. But to think about it in the way you're talking about and the way I'm also uh, embracing more and more, we we can get ourselves into a little bit of uh, difficulty in some settings. And so one way that I see emerging that gives me a lot of hope, actually, and I think it's part of what's kind of lifted me to where I am now, and I'm feeling quite excited about what comes next. I think there's two parts to it. One is I think there is just a general generational upgrade going on. I think each generation builds on what happened before. In some ways, history repeats. We see genocides within the last decades. We see uh, social exclusion. We see all kinds of very serious problems. So we haven't totally gotten it figured out. And at the same time, I think we are seeing an emergence of a wider collective awakeness. That's my personal opinion. I could argue a little because some of what we're learning now, you know, the Buddha explained a long, long time ago. (laughs) And some of what we're learning now, our parents learned before us and it is. But it's my personal opinion that we are collectively a little further ahead than we were. So that's one thing that gives me hope and also empowers me to keep going. But the other thing that I see as perhaps more practical in, in more, let's say, professional settings is that we don't actually have to label things. In fact, maybe sometimes we're better not labeling things. Mm-hmm. And words, because words can, uh, as one of the great police songs from the 80s will say, words can tie us up and rape us. In fact, we can simply express ourselves or observe ex- expressions in loving ways. And I'll, let me give a concrete example if I can. So I was invited to uh, give a keynote address to an industry event in Brazil uh, that was hosted by an industry association. It was all heavy industry, so manufacturing, the kind of big, uh, big heavy metal guys. I think of like so they're the miners and the the auto manufacturers and the technology folks. Almost nothing land based agriculture, forestry, which is where I often hover. So this was a little bit of a gear switch for me in terms of the audience. And uh, it was a circular economy event. And they had actually originally invited um, Bill McDonough, sort of like the grandfather of the circular economy, but he wasn't available. And then they invited uh, Bob Willard, who's, again, sort of the grandfather of the business case for sustainability. And uh, really, you know, used to work at IBM, like great, great straight man in sustainability, but also able to, to tell really good stories. And he wasn't available. And Bob is a great mentor of mine. And so Bob basically said to the organizers, oh, you know what? I can't go, but you should take Lorraine. She she can go and she can speak Portuguese. And so they naively accepted me and, you know, they were looking for pretty serious recognized names and VIPs and, and men. Um, and they got me. And, and, uh, and they got me. And I thought, well, I could play to the crowd and 
do my best to show up with what I think they're expecting. But that feels like, first of all, not very genuine to me. And so I'll struggle, like my, I'll be presenting in Portuguese and the language won't come as well if I'm not feeling the love. <laughs> um, but also I feel like that would be a missed opportunity because I think one of the great parts of the path forward for the circular economy, which needs to be a lot more than just bringing used materials, you know, back into a value web. Uh, it's got a lot of interactive self, you know, reinforcing positive feedback loops to get there. We're going to need to look after each other. We're going to need to understand ourselves in ways we haven't before. This is Caterpillar trying to talk about what it's like to be a butterfly, but like, he doesn't even have wings. He's like, I don't know. There's this thing coming. I don't know what it is. So I decided, I don't think I used the word love once in my talk, but I mm. decided to demonstrate how, how I've been expressing myself and how I see these new emergent ways coming into being. And I kind of toggled between like kind of quirky things like growing cotton on my windowsill and spinning it into fiber uh -huh. and turning it into thread and kind of explaining the thread of my life, which has been as a textile artisan, as a spinner, as a knitter, as a weaver, uh -huh. and the reinvention of industry. And so it, it wasn't perhaps all that coherent, um, although th there was an arc to it. Uh, and if people are super bored, it's online on my blog. But if you if you follow, and people did follow. So what ended up happening was I was so joyful talking about what I have understood to be the evolution of the regenerative economy that is being born and how the circular economy fits within that, what my role has been, what the role of some businesses is, what the role of the audience might be. I was truly joyful. I was having so much fun up there that to me, that is, a, that is an expression of love. And I was loving the people in the room. And some of them, I can't, of course, say what anybody else was thinking. And there quite possibly were people who were like, I don't understand a word she said, and it's not just her bad Portuguese. Um, but I'll tell you, Alessandra, at the end of that talk, I had people lining up to have a conversation with me, wanting to share their own version of that feeling. There's a real hunger for this. So I think the love is there and it's, it's up to me and you and each of us to express it and participate in it versus constantly calling out the hate or like codifying and creating policies to stamp out hate. It's, mm. although I get the need for policies yeah. as well, but yeah, I don't know if that, if that makes yeah. any sense. I actually, I remember going to your blog and listening to, uh, that pot, that recording of you giving that speech, I understood most of it because I speak Spanish. Of course, um, yeah, yeah. Your, the Portuguese wasn't so, but then I had to look at like the transcript and what you were saying. Um, uh, and I loved it as usual because um, I think you and I are like on the same frequency. <laughs> totally, but, I feel the vibrations. Yeah, but what you're saying, um, oh my gosh, there's so many things. Like you didn't you didn't use the word love once, right? But you spoke with it. You exuded it. It was part of your message and then people, it resonated. So back to what you're saying, you don't have to label things and kind of interesting too, like we just label love. Like, so you mentioned love and you said these love cards earlier, like, oh, you have, you know, family love and you have like romantic love and you have all these, but we've, 
it's just they're these superficial little layers of what love is but love is just like this insanely infinite thing that comes from this place that we don't even know and so like it should be completely it, it is to its essence unconditional and not because you give me something i love you or you give me something and or i'll give you something you have to love me it's not transactional it's just like you know the sun shining on the earth and mm. the sun will never say you know aren't you gonna say thank you for like no it's just love it's just like i'm gonna shine on you without asking for anything ever in return yeah. um because that's where it is so like if this goes back to like really the whole reason why i created this podcast right it was like i want to talk about this stuff like what's stopping us because i really truly believe right i've been in environmental space um for the majority of my small career, uh, for my entire career, which is small, and you've been in it longer. And um, if we don't, if we don't do what you're saying, so this is good. This is good advice. What I'm walking away from this part of the conversation with is, you can, you can bring love into the conversation without mentioning it and saying it, just like exuding it, and hopefully setting an example. And other people are coming up. And I completely agree that collectively there are more people who are evolving. And I think that, I mean, so I did this on one of the episodes, I think it was episode 104 with Diego from Pachama on the reversing climate change podcast. I loved that episode. Oh, Listeners yeah. well, I, after this go there. It's a great one. Yeah. Uh, well, no, cause I'm going to try. Uh, Diego said he'd love to be on this podcast. Oh, so I think really, might be yeah, yeah. yeah. Three or I really um, appreciated his perspective. Yeah, Diego's fantastic, really good human being. Anyways, on that podcast, I said, you know, I was referring to Eckhart Tolle, um, The New Work Awakening, which is a phenomenal book. I still haven't quite finished reading it. I have these multiple spiritual books that I'm going through, but they're like, it's almost like guides to life. So I go them through them somewhat slowly or I revisit. But anyways, he says, you know, because you mentioned the Buddha Lorraine, um, just because they were enlightened uh, teachers at one point um, and it didn't seem like it worked it did They're, like evolution always starts with the first of anything like at first there was a first flower that was maybe this small really small the size of a pea and bloomed for a couple minutes and then there was another one and then there was another one and then it got bigger and then they bloomed for longer and then you got more types um, and then you you went from and you know amphibians to uh, now land walking animals that live on the land because of some constraints. So just because there were enlightened teachers like Jesus or Buddha or Lao Tzu um, thousands and hundreds of years ago, they were just, they were the necessary first blossoms for us to come collectively. Um, so this is, this is all Eckhart Tolle who describes this and he says it way better than I do. Um, but I love that idea. And this is my hope is like maybe, we can talk about this more so that we don't feel like it's doomed, right? Like we can easily look at, well, you know, there's Christianity, there's all these people and it didn't work before. We're, we're just as shitty and we're just as um, worse off as we were before. But I don't think so. However, now here's a question for you. Um, you, you know, you mentioned Brazil um, and I kind of, this is an interesting topic for me. Uh, and I think you're a perfect person to respond to this most of our businesses or the way that we run this planet um, capitalism extracts from one place to provide to another place. 
Um, so our avocados that everybody consumes in America come from Mexico. Um, I mean, there are so many things that just come from other places and we are consuming from those places and those economies and those communities and bringing them to the rich. And it's even with technology now, right? Like we have people developing tech in uh, highly developed countries like the US, Silicon Valley developing you know, tech everywhere, Facebook, Google. And then you just have people across the world using that who are providing data for it. So Google and Facebook, right? So then these, this is a concept of data colonies. So to me, if we're not, and this is my hope, I think it's now my new mission in life is to close this gap between, you know, do what I can to help build more bridges between these two places. And I don't know where to start. So um, I don't know. What are your thoughts in general about like, I'm sure you have many thoughts about this growing gap between who's providing and who's taking. Yeah. Oh, wow. I, I love the question and I'm, I'm going to try to answer both with my impressions, just sort of moving through life and then also to offer some practical ideas. Like sometimes I hear myself and I'm like, if I were one of my clients, I'd be like, this may be fascinating, but I have no clue what you're actually recommending. Right. <laughs> so, right. And in some cases, I'm like, well, too bad, you know, right. <laughs> like me either. Uh, but I am going <laughs> to try to challenge myself. Um, so I uh, just for quick context, I am very lucky that I speak Portuguese because I did a year rotary exchange when I was a teenager. Thank you, parents, for letting me run away from home legally a few times. Uh, that was the second one. Um, And so as a result, in my latter years, as I've done this sustainability work, I've been uh, engaged as a consultant and or a stakeholder. And now sometimes as a friend, I've I've been able to establish really good relationships in Brazil. And since more or less since 2017, I've been going back and forth a fair bit. I'll I'll likely be there for the month of June this year. Um, And so as a result, that's given me some really helpful insights into different companies, supply chains, etc., So my answer may uh, surprise you a little bit because I feel like in some ways, yes, that extractive nature is an issue for sure and can have very negative effects on the people and their, the local and even more regional ecosystem. So I don't mean to minimize those issues, but I actually don't think the, the issue is the distance I think it's the understanding. And I say that because in Brazil, for example, one country, you can actually see the same problem happening within the region. So you can see Mm. the value being extracted and the harm being done in communities and being consumed, you know, just down the highway in the big city. Now, Brazil is a really big country. So sometimes that extraction or, or work is being done you know, a state or two away and it's being purchased and consumed in Sao Paulo or Rio de Janeiro. But the issue, in my humble opinion, is not the distance. So that avocados are grown in Mexico and and exported to wealthier parts of the world to be consumed is an expression of not understanding what we're doing to ourselves. And so there's a few ways I see examples where distance actually isn't a problem at all. So I I often wonder, like, how does nature handle this? And I say that broadly, like, we're all nature, everything is nature, there's no not nature. But, But 
how do some species handle this challenge? Well, migratory birds and butterflies and bats, um, they go incredible distances. Season after season after season, regions around the world. They've been doing this since long before we were here. And I asked myself, like, is the brown bat extractive? You know, is it doing damage in one place before it travels, you know, as it poops and does all the things it does and as it eats? And the simple answer is no. You know, it, these species have evolved to do what they need to do where they are and travel these long distances to, to propagate and regenerate year over year. So what is different with how industry has conducted that? And there I would say we get back to these concepts of regeneration where by creating value, we restore ecosystems. By creating value, we net sequester CO2. By creating value, we treat humans with love and dignity and respect, regardless of how far away the product will be consumed if it's a product being created. And so popping into Brazil for a moment, I can give a concrete example that just gives me so much hope, although it's, it's tenuous and it's gonna take a lot of leaning in and empowering these solutions for them to really take hold. Um, but I think, you know, you've got your average major like hyper supermercados, these massive supermarkets that sell the usual crap that's not very healthy. The cheapest price is incentivized. Um, so you've got the same issues there with food that's grown very extractively yeah. um, within the region even. But then you've also got this emergent network of grocery stores, and I case studied one in a white paper that I um, authored on behalf of John Elkington's team, Volans, on regenerative procurement. There's a case study there that looks at this network. It's not even a network. It's just different stores opening up that are, the one that I case studied is Instituto Ferra Libre, that is a worker-owned grocery store. So worker ownership, not a brand new concept. But the store sells only organic, locally produced, so very um, you know, high standard. And the price the customer sees on the shelf is the price that is set by the producer. So the producer says, in order for me to sell you these goods, this is what you need. So the customer sees the price that the producer gets. That in and of itself is quite unique. And then they have a way to offer a markup that the customer pays. So they have this unusual business model. And then if you swim upstream into their value chain or value web, one of their main suppliers is of products that are certified by the Origines Brazil certification. It's a certification that is the governance structure behind it is phenomenal. It's a collaboration between indigenous communities and other non-indigenous Quilombola and other local communities. This is in their three different regions in the Amazon basin. And they produce a wide range of products from a lot of different tree nuts and other forest based products. They set the price and the provenance of these products is really quite, um, quite remarkable, the, the sort of data transparency behind it. The governance is really complex. And, you know, by the way, nature is really complex. Like there isn't just one guy who knows everything. There's lots of people involved, lots of people exchanging knowledge, transacting money. And they produce a wide array of products that make it to the supermarkets of Sao Paulo, Rio de Janeiro, and other parts of Brazil. And Instituto Ferra Libre, because it prioritizes products that are fabulous in all the way, in all the loving ways we'd like to see, they buy those products. So the distance is still the same for the really crappy extractive, you know, uh, industrial soy fed industrial beef that's deforesting the Amazon as it is for the Origin Brazil certified cashews. It's the distance and the supply webs are, you know, their choices that we make along the way. 
so if it okay there's there's a lot there so what are you suggesting then like how do we get people to value one over the other if the price is the same there's a lot of storytelling to go on I think definitely it's storytelling. I think it's also just decisions. I mean, you mentioned something earlier on. How do how do we get people to make these decisions? And I, you know, part of me says, well, I can't change other people, uh, but the other is I can demonstrate where those decisions are being made. And so sure. these, so there's five companies, five stores in São Paulo that are modeled the same way as Instituto Fera Libre, and they have made a decision as part of their purpose to only function this way. And that feels new. And I think it's actually in some ways quite old. We just, you know, 200 years ago, we didn't even have to make these decisions. Right. And it was a very different dynamic. So we're sort of coming back to some basics around how to treat each other. Um, I think there's two very practical things that companies are doing and all need to do more of, which is, first of all, just recognize not where can you reduce harm. I mean, reducing harm is better than increasing harm. But I think we have to really flip that switch and stop talking about reducing harm and talk about improving um like net increasing benefit what is the good so genuinely yeah exactly and and really like asking the deep questions and we have so many tools and metrics to to ask that and then the other thing we need to do and we're seeing an awakening but there needs to be more decision making that focuses on this is recognizing where is that happening where is it working and you know i've just given one example there are lots but something you mentioned about the Buddha and, you know, Jesus and all these teachers from way back, I want to just signal that there is a lot more that's been working for a lot longer, a lot of amazing teaching. And I'm going to go out on a twig and say a lot of it has been by women that have never been recognized. And so I say with a ton of respect to the Buddha and many other teachers who've done incredible things to empower great thinking and, and potential in our lives that a big challenge you and I get to overcome in our lifetime, and we're doing it, is that in the early phases of industrialization, it had become normal in what we now recognize as the colonizing countries so Europe, et cetera. Um, it had become normal for the role of women to be marginalized, which is why it was, you know, it was sort of a thing, but, but a normal thing to have witch hunts, et cetera. It was normal for the role of women to no longer be decision makers, to no longer have voices of power. And that legacy is something we are still coping with today. Um, That and the role of indigenous communities around the world. And I say this in Canada where yesterday I walked through a protest on Sherbrooke in Montreal because of what's going on with the pipelines and uh, the rail shut down here. This is a very active conversation and people see it as, Uh, a kind of anti-business conversation. And I would say, flip that switch. This is not anti-business. This is Mm pro-life. This is pro-love. This is pro-stewarding what allows us to thrive. And who is behind that? Women. Women who understand what it means to nurture, to support, to empower, and to make good decisions. So I would see the practical changes to be made to be really honest and say, where do we have the capacity to generate net good? And and be honest about where you do and where you don't, stop. And then where can you look to existing patterns of interaction, of decision-making 
that have been net good. And it's not all women, of course. We're we're a you know we're a bi-gender or a kind of mixed gender species. Um, but we have unfortunately marginalized some of the best decision making and some of the best direction in our collective histories. And we have this amazing opportunity to sort of rematriate and allow the best thinking to be part of how decisions are made. Yeah. Yeah. What you're touching on um, totally resonates, obviously. Um, and I think it's just, I don't, I'm trying to recall the name of this person that I was watching a lecture on the other day, but just the idea that Oh, it might, might have been Eckhart Tolle. He, talk, <laughs> he talks about, um, you know, the collective pain body, the collective female pain body. And the pain body is like this thing that we carry in us that causes us to react to like pains or traumas or triggers. Um, it's like all of our pain or traumas. Um, but women, we carry a collective pain body. He talks about the menstrual cycle. And like when we get our period, like that is a collective pain body. Um, and we just need to leave space for it. And, um, it is interesting too, that like our collective feminine pain body is just to, is really on the whole, just shutting it down and not giving it space. Um, and I don't know why that is. So I'm interested to like, that's mm -hmm. a question now I want to, I want to start looking into through my readings and, and things, but it's like, why, why have we developed a society? Why is it that our society has gone all the way down this path of just completely destroying the divine feminine that is like innate in all of us. And the thing is too, is, you know, we all share similar qualities. So there are masculine energies in me, there um, I'm sure feminine energies in, in men. Um, and yet we, I constantly have to, like I have in the past and I'm only 30, but you know, my career so far has just been like, playing up those masculine qualities and that's what I think have made me successful yeah. versus like I shut down my my feminine qualities and now I'm recently trying to honor that and like be like yeah I am feminine like there are things about me and it's beautiful but how do I bring that in without being looked at like I have three heads in the office like I say things sometimes and like a colleague will be like, that literally just sounds like word soup. And I'm like, what? I said the same thing to Lorraine the other day and we had like a three hour conversation. So it's just like, we're thinking yeah. on these different um, yeah. levels with these different words. It just doesn't. Yeah. This is tough. This is a very good one. I don't have any answers other than like to respond and say a hundred percent we need to. And I think women across the world are feeling that. And like, especially because more women are, you know, we're rising up. I think more companies are making efforts to um, bring and empower more women in management. Um, so I know like uh, my cousin, she works at um, Amex and like, I think the CEO made a commitment to do like 50% women in, in middle management, some commitment like that, which is great. Yeah. Um, yeah. But even then, like, is it that they're valued for their feminine qualities or is it like, right. let's you. promote the women who continue to perpetuate this idea that the masculine totally. qualities are what, are what we need in business. Yeah. 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 And like, let's put a finer point on it. I mean, and, and I've been trained in that model. So part of me, like I'm still a caterpillar describing the butterfly here, although I feel, I feel the wings forming and sometimes I can see them and I have my caterpillar, uh, my butterfly days for sure. 
but we we do um, promote women for behaving like men. You know, that's no great big headline. So, and I've you know sometimes I'll I'll tailor my vocabulary and my my approach to an audience. And if I understand that I'm going to alienate the people I'm talking to, then I'll I'll take a different approach. So I think there is room for flexibility and compassion as well and and being non-threatening and and blending in but we it is a real uh, paradox and for sure it's something that I struggle with where I think to be really truthful I need to say some things that are going to be really uncomfortable and they're going to draw on wisdom that I have I think because I'm a woman and so how do you deliver that information in a way that is loving but is truthful and it's going to be actually a little bit ugly and I'll give a really concrete example that we're living here in Canada that, you know, when I raise it, I think some people may just hear it as this sort of marginalized news item, but I actually think it's sort of an indicator for how we have been functioning. And th- this is really uncomfortable, and a lot of people don't realize this is true, but I'm telling the truth, and you can, like, see it on Wikipedia and mainstream news, including the Government of Canada website, which is that within my lifetime... So I was born in 1971. So within my lifetime, in this country, we carried out a genocide against Indigenous women and girls. And these are Indigenous women and girls. So we'll just repeat that. That that was the target of the genocide. Thousands of Indigenous women and girls were murdered or went missing and are likely dead in my lifetime. This was a systemic known situation. It was carried out by institutions who are funded by the taxpayer. So in my lifetime, as a settler of multiple generations in this country, I helped fund a genocide. Now, that in and of itself is an atrocity. There's nothing acceptable about that. But let's take it one step further and look at beyond the horror of people's mothers and sisters and cousins and daughters being killed because of their birth legacy, their indigenous. Um, Let's let's allow ourselves to get over the, the moment of knowing how atrocious that is and think about why is it even more exponentially horrific than just that pure fact? It's more exponentially horrific because, for instance, um, what I've come to learn through friends here locally who are Mohawk and part of the the Mohawk communities here near Montreal, for instance, in the Mohawk community, it's the women who make the decisions. It's the women who direct the path for the family, for the community, for, in some cases, for businesses or other uh, initiatives within the community. And it's the men who execute. So they they all work together. It isn't that, you know, they're all separated and they have to, you know, they can't communicate, but it is the women who set the direction. So, and that by the way, is not unique. When you look at different communities and different cultures, it has often been the women who've held the knowledge and who've held the connections and the responsibility and not because they're better, but because that is how things have evolved and there are differences between the genders. And so when you kill marginalize or or essentially isolate and make living conditions untenably horrific for the people who are most capable to make the decisions 
you compromise your own ability to thrive. And I would say we have done versions of that over and over in different societal contexts. And so I don't want to skim over the the need to reconcile and have truly meaningful um, dialogue around understanding what happened and who was responsible. What was this event exactly for people who are not familiar? Yeah, it's, it's pretty long and complex. The easiest way to find out more is to just look at the hashtag um, missing and murdered indigenous women. So M M I W um, missing and murdered. Yeah. M M I W is the hashtag and you'll find a trove of information, including a report, uh, the final report, although it probably won't be the final one that came out in June, 2019 on the missing and murdered indigenous women uh, investigation in Canada. It's, it's really complex. It's basically sort of systemic racism that allowed missing persons cases to go undocumented, allowed, um, imprisonment for sort of non-criminal behavior and a whole host of sort of cascading events that let a lot of people be um, ignored, slipped through the cracks, institutionalized. And um, yeah, it's like, it's unspeakably awful. And this is Canada and I'm, you know, I'm Canadian. There's a lot of things I love about this country, but I would say we have to have the courage to open our eyes and talk about things that are true even when we don't want them to be true. And I think that's the case with business. So when I look at business, I think, you know, just to shift from the, the uh, genocide, not to um, give it short shrift, but to shift gears into an industrial context, which is where I spend most of my time uh, professionally. And by the way, the reason I know about that other stuff is because of that second part of my work, I said, where I've started to, as much as I can, spend more time just listening and learning and participating in parts of life that are outside of the mainstream industrial conversation. And I've been very grateful for that because it's really informed me. And I think it's part of what needs to be in the industrial piece. So if we go into corporate land, what does it all mean? It means I think what we're doing as an industrial society is similar in mindset to that genocide result, which is we are not recognizing that we are doing harm to ourselves and others systemically that we've codified it into how we do business. And then we've called it trade-offs or externalities. We've, we've separated ourselves from the ability to see it, to look it in the eye, to literally make eye contact with the people, which is a eye contact in my opinion is a, is a loving opportunity, right? When you can actually see people, when people can be seen and heard, but seen, truly see them. That is a, an opportunity to exchange love in some way. And industry has really disaggregated our ability to do that. And so we have this systemic abuses that occur. And how do we stop that? We, we need to give people permission to realize that. And it's very, very uncomfortable. Like if you've ever known anybody or, or been in a situation where you've had to come to terms with something truly, you know, viscerally difficult something perhaps from someone's past or something that's happening right now that they don't want to see when you really see it it's existentially uncomfortable so we need to create these really safe spaces for people in business to recognize their roles not feel guilt not place blame but recognize and then imagine what it looks like to move beyond that so you know caterpillars aren't bad 
but they're going to have to become butterflies. You know, how do we go into that in a safe way? It's it's kind of, you know, not to get too heavy and dark, but I do feel like that's the, that's the size of what we're facing across most industries who have still not truly taken a deep breath and really gone into that quiet inner space. Yeah. Yeah. I think what you're touching on is absolutely correct in regards to everything that we've been talking about. And it's almost like, you know, we've been talking, you know, it's talked about physical health. Now mental health is a thing, at least in the United States and the Western world, this is the top of mind for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I just, I hope we have listeners who are not just in the the Western uh, or Western world. So anyways, in the U S Canada, I'm sure in Europe too, but it's interesting because to me, it's like, what about our spiritual health? Like that should not be something that we look or discount or look past or like, just be like, Oh yeah. No, like legitimately, what is your spiritual health? Because we are um, completely reliant on who we, like what we really are, which is the thing that is not our body. It's the thing that like leaves the body once, once we die and comes in, you know, when we're conceived and like, um, it's just, if we can't talk about that, then there's just no point. Like then we're talking about all the other systems, all the superficial things. And so I'm not to discount like, yes, I would, I would like to see, um, you know, our ergonomics, like, Oh, are you sitting safely and uh, you know, taking care of your health? Yes. Physical health is important. This is our only body. It's a gift. Um, your mental health, how are you doing? Are you like de-stressing, exercising, et cetera, for that mental health? Yes, important. How's your spiritual health? Like that should be something that people look into. And if we can't heal, because if we're talking about um, what you just described, like looking looking in the eyes at the thing that you're starting, instead of calling it a trade-off and being like, oh no, we're doing legitimate harm to indigenous communities in Brazil and Peru and Colombia. Oh, uh, okay you were the person who signed that piece of paper, like, like shame. And like that, it is, things are done. So you can't move on beyond it. If we don't make a conscious decision to forgive ourselves, to give it space to love and to let that love help transform that fear and shame into something else so that you can make the next Better decision. We didn't talk about Frozen. Oh man, that was my first <laughs> Frozen. I haven't um, seen it yet, though. Thing. I still, I know I have to see it, but yeah. Okay, yeah. Frozen Two. I'm gonna. I think I'm just gonna do like a whole video on why Frozen Two was my favorite movie of uh, 2019. Yeah, I gotta see it. I totally gotta see it. Um, it's actually quite incredible how Frozen Two has. Uh, I watched it before I went on this huge, massive trip, um, like month long retreat trip. And went to Peru, went to Thailand, and did ayahuasca and meditated. And it was the best thing ever. But uh, that movie completely describes like just the journey I'm going through. And I watched it again when I got back, and with in hindsight, realized all the connections. And I just sat, had to pause because things were too real. So the troll says, you know, when you can't see the future, the next thing you can do is the next right thing. Yeah. Um, so bringing it back to this co- conversation we're having is. Yeah, we've fucked it up. We have 
oh man, now I got to make it the explicit market on the podcast because I curse. Oh, so good. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> so we have done damage to this planet and there's nothing more to do than to stare into the darkness and say, this is what I've done. I, you know, it wasn't with intention or whatever, just to give things in space is what I've contributed to. Um, how can I, with love, make the next right move? Um, and that is a conversation you only really have in the, in the context of spirituality. And that's why I think if we talked about spirituality in our professional lives more, this world would be better off. So anyways, yeah. I think that we've talked about so much, Lorraine. Um might have you back. This was super fun. Thanks for Thank you. for joining us. Yeah. It's a great pleasure. Thank you for letting me have this conversation with you. And um, with, with, as I close here, I think, I wonder what the next right thing is that I'm going to do on this Saturday afternoon. Uh, I'm going to go do yoga. What are you going to do? Nice. I think I'm going to um, hang some art. Yes. Do it. Yeah. Did you frame some of your art? I sure did. Yeah. Yeah. I did. So I'm going to be hanging some of it. Thank you for inviting me into this. I'm really excited to hear your next conversations and uh, look forward to catching up more with you again soon. Awesome. Thanks, Lorraine.